Friends, good morning. It is so good to be here in worship with all of you today. Over the recent months, I've gotten to know this congregation from afar, mostly through my friendship with Amy, but also through the podcast. Maybe some of you tuned in on Micah 6-8. And so it has been a special privilege and joy to be here in person, to be here in three dimensions and not just over the, uh, the internet, and to get to know some of you as friends and partners in ministry and to see the beautiful work that God is doing in and through this community of faith. Please join me for a moment of prayer. God, may you open up these ancient texts for us this morning, that in hearing them, your spirit might open our eyes and hearts to the deep truths of your word and how it calls us to faith and love in the world that you love so much. Amen. Our first reading this morning comes from one of my favorite books in the Bible, Leviticus. It's chapter 9, 19, excuse me, verses 9 through 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyards bare or gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the alien. Our second reading comes from the Gospel of Mark, the 14th chapter, verses 3 through 9. It's a story about Jesus' anointing at Bethany, just days before he would enter Jerusalem, be tried, sentenced, and put to death. While Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very costly ointment of nard, and she broke open the jar and poured the ointment on his head. But some were there who said to one another in anger, why was the ointment wasted in this way? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they scolded the woman. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has performed a good service for me, for you always will have the poor with you, and you can show kindness to them whenever you wish, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for its burial. Truly, I tell you, whenever the good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. In 1995, dozens of homeless families moved into an abandoned Catholic church building in the neighborhood of Kensington in North Philadelphia, not far from where I grew up and where my parents grew up and where my Italian immigrants moved into this country back in the early 20th century. When the archdiocese was informed of what they had done, the families were told that they had 48 hours to vacate the premises or they would be arrested. With nowhere to go and no resources at their disposal, these mothers and children took a risk. They hung a banner out in front of the church that said this, how can we worship a homeless man on Sunday and ignore one every other day of the week? The situation made the local news, and these homeless families got ahead of the situation, and they called their own press conference. And in it, they reported that they had talked with the real owner of the building, God, 
and he said that they were allowed to stay until further accommodations were made. This was the beginning of The Simple Way, an intentional community designed to bring healing, hope, and shalom to Kensington, a neighborhood in Philadelphia that had been torn apart by poverty, gun violence, homelessness, and racism. There from the start of The Simple Way was a young man named Shane Claiborne. Now, Shane was not your typical Philadelphian. Trust me, I'm one of them. He was born and raised in northeastern Tennessee and was more likely to say y'all than use guys, uh, which is Philadelphian for the second person pronoun, you. He was brought up Southern Baptist, not Catholic, and his home had a whopping population of 800, not the 5.7 million in the greater Philadelphia area. Nevertheless, Shane has made Kensington his home for over two decades. He arrived in Philly in his mid-20s, fresh off of a transformative encounter with Mother Teresa in Calcutta. And when he returned, he wanted to make a difference. He wanted to embody the way that Mother Teresa reached out to the least and the lost. He wanted to follow Jesus' call to bring good news to the poor and to comfort those who mourned. And so when Shane moved into Kensington, he wasn't planning a church. He wasn't passing through on a mission trip. He wasn't setting up a short-term service project. Shane moved in to be a long-term resident. He and the other members of The Simple Way since have planted gardens. They've supported local businesses. They've improved schools. They've mentored youth. They've mourned with mothers who have lost their children. And they even have collected guns and literally turned them into garden tools. One time, Shane was asked, why? Why become a long-term resident of a place like Kensington when he could have gone anywhere in the world to do his ministry? And in response, Shane said this. He said, none of the significant problems facing our communities can be solved from a distance. Shane knows what we so often forget, that in order to make a lasting difference, in order to bring about the sort of transformation of the world that God loves so much, we can't stand at a distance. We have to take the risk of getting close. In our gospel reading this morning, we find Jesus and his disciples in a little town called Bethany. It was an ancient town that shared much in common with Kensington. It, too, was a small, impoverished neighborhood in the shadow of a larger city, in this case, Jerusalem. In Hebrew, the word Bethany, Beit Ani, literally means home or house of the poor. And sure enough, in Jesus' day, it was one of the poorest areas in all of Judea. It was crippled by devastating taxes levied by Herod to build his various palaces and even to renovate the temple in Jerusalem. Much like those families who moved into that abandoned church building in Kensington, many in Bethany would have been homeless. Bethany was the last stop on Jesus' long journey from the Galilee, where he was born and raised and spent his life in ministry, to Jerusalem, where he soon would be persecuted, sentenced, and put to death. 
Now, while there in Bethany, Jesus gathers with his disciples, and an unknown, unnamed woman comes along, and she takes this costly jar of ointment, and she breaks it open, and she pours it over Jesus' head in this lavish act of honor and worship. Now, the disciples see this, and as I say in my family, they had all the feels. They were very agitated and angry at what this woman had done. And they say, they ask, why would you waste such valuable resources when the ointment could have been sold and the proceeds given away to those in need? Didn't Jesus say that we should care for the least of those among us? The ointment was said to be worth 300 denarii, which was the equivalent of a year's salary for a day laborer back in Jesus' day. And the disciples reason that amount of money certainly could have done a lot of good in a place like Bethany. Now, surprisingly, Jesus doesn't high-five them and celebrate uh, their concern for the poor. Instead, Jesus pushes back. Listen again to what he says. He says, let her alone. Why trouble her? For she has performed a good service for me. Now, this is strange to me. I study as my profession the Old Testament, but I have to admit that sometimes the appendix, sometimes known as the New Testament, sometimes confuses me. And this is one of those passages that confuses me. What are we to make, how are we to make sense of what Jesus is saying when he pushes back against the disciples' concern for the poor? Well, many commentators have suggested that Jesus means to imply that what the woman has done in worshiping him is more important and more valuable than what the disciples wanted to do in caring for the poor. So it sets up this dichotomy between worshiping Jesus and caring for your community. And these commentators say, well, this indicates that worshiping Jesus is the real thing. That's the main entree. And maybe caring for the poor is just something one does on the side. I have to say, I find this conclusion grossly out of step with Jesus' life and ministry, which he spent with the poor, the sick, and the marginalized in the Galilee. It can't be this. It must be something else. And friends, what I want to suggest is that Jesus wasn't challenging the disciples' concern for the poor. He was challenging how they wanted to solve the problem of poverty. Think about it for a second. The disciples' approach seems to be very transactional. They want to take the ointment, sell it, get the money, get it out the door, and likely they would move on then to the next city. Though fueled by good intentions, the disciples seem to want to care for the poor, all while keeping those experiencing poverty at a distance. I wonder, did the disciples ever get to know the poor in Bethany? Did they know their names? Did they know their backgrounds? Did they know their stories? Did they know why they became poor in the first place? Had they ever asked anyone in Bethany if they needed money? Or did they need something else? Did they involve those in Bethany in the decision about what to do for the poor? It doesn't seem like it. The disciples here cared about poverty, but they weren't yet ready to risk proximity. Friends, I think we often fall into this same trap. It's not the caring part that we struggle with. It's often the proximity part that we struggle with. We want to love our neighbors, but we're reluctant to move into their neighborhoods, to shop where they shop, 
to work where they work, to bump into them on the way to school, to have our kids go to the same school as theirs. We want to solve the problems of our community. Sincerely, I think we do, but we want to do it from a distance. Again and again in the scriptures, what we find is that proximity is actually a prerequisite for God's compassion and love. Think about the parable of the Good Samaritan. Do you remember how that story goes? There's a man who's been beaten and robbed and left for dead in the ditch on the side of a road, and first comes along a priest and a Levite, and they don't do anything to help. And then a third person comes along. Things always happen in three in parables, by the way. A third person comes along, and it's a Samaritan, and he actually does stop, and he helps the man in need. He bandages his wounds, and he provides for his long-term care. Have you ever wondered what this is all about? What's the difference between the priest and the Levite, on the one hand, who go along their way, and the Samaritan who stops and cares for the person in need? Each of them knew that they were called to love their neighbors as themselves. Each of them knew the ancient law that said one must care for the stranger in need. They had all of that information. I think the difference is all about proximity. When the priest and the Levite approach, the text tells us that they are on the other side of the street. They are already at a distance from the man in need, but not so with the Samaritan. When he comes, the text tells us that the Samaritan draws near. He risks proximity, and then in response to that, he feels compassion for them in his heart. And friends, I think that that order matters. The proximity comes before the compassion. In fact, I would say that the compassion wouldn't have been possible without the proximity. In fact, I wonder, and I suspect, although the text doesn't say this, that had the priest and the Levite risked proximity, they too would have had compassion, and they too would have helped the man in need. Friends, this parable, I think, is not about compassion. It's about needing to risk proximity. So, what does it look like to risk proximity? Well, here's where that favorite text of mine from Leviticus 19 comes into play. A few verses after the text that we read just a little while ago, we hear uh, the second greatest commandment, love thy neighbor as thyself. And the text that we read about the harvesting and the gleaning, it gives us an illustration of what it looks like to love our neighbor. So let's think for a second about what that text pictures. It's spoken to property owners. Now, in the ancient world, all of us would have been uh, small-scale subsistence farmers. We wouldn't be doctors and lawyers and accountants and IT specialists and so on and so forth. We all would have been small-scale farmers. We all would have had little half-acre plots of land in which we grew everything we needed. But this text tells us that when it comes to harvest season, We should not go out and harvest the entire crop. This is crop that we had planted. We tilled the soil. We weeded the ground. We watered and cared for the soil. But when it comes to harvest season, we are not to bring it all in, even though, legally, it's ours. Instead, each one of us is to allow a portion of the land to be harvested by the poor and the refugee in our community. Right? It's an amazing system of community support, and there's a lot I would want to say about this text, but Amy said that this was not a 45-minute sermon, um, so we will, we'll, I'll save that for another time. But I want to say this. I want to point out one simple thing about how this practice of gleaning differs 
from what the disciples wanted to do in Bethany, right? In Mark 14, the disciples wanted to love their neighbors, no doubt, but they were reluctant to move into the neighborhood. Though well-intended and big-hearted, the disciples' desire uh, to give away money effectively keeps the poor at arm's length. But in Leviticus 19, the situation is much different. The property owner is not to take a portion of the crop, sell it, and give the money to the poor. No, the poor are invited onto the land and to do the work of harvesting themselves. Such a practice not only is more dignifying to those who are poor, but it also cultivates proximity. On small farms, the property owners and the poor of the community would have literally worked side by side. So we're not talking 20,000 cattle farms for those Yellowstone fans out there. Um, These are small little plots of land. It puts people side by side. I can imagine a situation where the property owner and the poor, they get to know each other's names. Their kids are playing together in the background. They share stories and joys and griefs. They might even be able to share tips about best practices in farming. In that practice, they actually not just love each other, but they actually become neighbors in proximity with one another. This practice of gleaning does not invite us to, does not just invite us to love our neighbors. Uh, It invites us to take the risk of getting close enough to know those in need as neighbors. Now, friends, let me be clear. Getting close and making real connections with our communities is hard slow and risky. It involves vulnerability. It means opening ourselves up to the grief of others and the complexity of the problems facing our world. It means we must step out of our comfort zones and interact with those who are different from us. It can be humbling and disappointing to get close to those in need. It is slow work. The changes are rarely instant and obvious. Friends, the reality is loving our neighbors from a distance is far easier and more immediately gratifying than actually taking the risk of proximity. Getting close, though, is part of our calls to discipleship. It requires that we start putting as much time into understanding our neighborhoods as we put into understanding our theology and our scriptures and our traditions. It invites us to ask tougher questions about the reasons why there are problems in our community. It's one thing to note the symptoms of the problems, but what are the sources and reasons for these problems in the first place? One can only do that if one risks proximity. Risking proximity challenges us to dissenter ourselves from positions of leadership and to realize that good intentions, like the disciples had, aren't a substitute for building authentic relationships of trust. Friends, where and how are you willing to risk proximity this morning and in your own life and families? What neighborhoods do you need to move into or at least spend more time in? What would it mean to show up enough in those neighborhoods that you want to serve that you become known by name and trusted as a neighbor? not just someone there to help. How might showing up and taking the risk of getting close transform the neighborhood and maybe even your own life? In the scriptures, risking proximity is not just an ethical imperative, although it is clearly that. In the scriptures, risking proximity is the substance of the gospel. 
The good news of the gospel and of Jesus is that God doesn't love us from afar. God doesn't love us from a distance. God doesn't keep the brokenness of the world at arm's length. In taking on flesh and living among us, God embraces the risk of proximity. The incarnation, friends, is nothing other than God daring to move into our neighborhoods, to get close to our pain, to experience our grief up close, and to take on the risk of opening his life up to ours. Thanks be to God that God has taken this risk, and may it be so in our life and our ministries as well. Amen.